feel like the beard makes me look like I'm always about to go skiing. I don't know why. I think it's just because like uh, having stuff on my face was always something that I, I did when I would go skiing. Yeah. But for whatever, like every time I see myself, I'm like, whoa, you look bundled up. <laughs> <laughs> and we're live. Uh, <laughs> hello. Hello, everyone. With we're live today with Nicholas's skiing beard. I'm mm-hmm. Adrienne. I'm Nicholas Rave. This Welcome to the Enlightened Couch Potato Podcast. Oh, 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 I was talking over you. I'm sorry. Oh, it happens. We, what are we? Part four. We're in part four of the movies and TV that made us. And we're hovering in this fun zone. We're in the fun zone. <laughs> Is the fun zone better than the, than the friend zone? Who the voice am I doing? What I don't am I? know. <laughs> Just go with I, it. I think I think I, I th- they took my stapler. Are we in the friend zone? <laughs> is it is it uh you if you take my stapler, I'm gonna burn down the building. <laughs> is is that, is that the a voice? Little bit that one. Earlier I was singing rubber ducky in my car because that is on my SD card that has music in my car marveling at how many voices I can sometimes do, which is pretty great. I got distracted. So we're in that fun space of pre-awakening awakening, which I think I was looking over the notes that I prepared because I'm prepared today. And I noticed that a lot of crossover. And then when I talked to Nicholas, apparently we both have crossover because we, there's some pre-awakening movies and TV shows we, we watched and then we rewatched them after awakening what yeah i would say, say awakening? uh well i think we defined it last week when mm-hmm. we we said the definition was was intentionality like being conscious simply being conscious of the power that stories have right that once you realize the possibility that this could be a transformational experience, it, it, they all sort of open up to being a transformational experience Absolutely. And reflecting again, since since some people might be joining us for the first time, our whole premise is that you can watch movies and TV and utilize the power of their evocative, emotive-ness-ness to help you shift things internally. There, we're going to be right now we're in the process of demonstrating and modeling what it looks like to talk about what TV and movies mean to you and the themes that have shown up. That is part of the process, being able to have conversations with people and, and thinking about what you're, what you're seeing and what you're viewing is one of the steps in the process of having more intentionality and allowing these tools to help you shift the way that your life feels. Specifically, the step that we're in right now is uh, what we call the stories or movies and TV that made you or made us. So it's the idea of going back and looking at the most significant movies and TV shows of your life, um, particularly your childhood, because we made the point a few episodes ago that these stories, the movies that we watch are in a very real sense, they are more our history and our legacy and our culture than our actual culture or our family history is for many of us. Yeah. Um, they're certainly better told stories. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the other thing is that 
as as we progress further in our adventure, we will teach you how to drop in more fully and allow. I can Nicholas likes to 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 use the metaphor about psychedelics, the the, mm. the meta metaphor mm-hmm. of how psychedelics are a useful process. Mm-hmm. I I don't indulge in metaphoric or other <laughs> forms of psychedelics. These are my psychedelics. These are mm. the pictures as well as my own meditations. These are the pictures that I allow in my head to help mm-hmm. shape my perspectives so that I can see my own world differently. I actually have a story that I won't, maybe I'll tell later, but probably not today about how uh, Black Panther to me was much like taking a psychedelic, mm. like, like going in and seeing that movie and then coming down from that and going out mm. into the regular world is much like friends of mine who take psychedelics have described it. So we will tell you in more depth how to, how to increase the value and to drop in deeper into a deeper trance or, or allowing TV and movies to be more effective for you. Right mm-hmm. now we're doing the more conscious process of, of you know, we're, we're, we're modeling a journaling process or a conversational process. You could, you would literally talk to your friends about what these, these shows in your life have meant to you. Yeah. The, the thing that I, I think about a lot in, in terms of the psychedelic metaphor is <clears throat> Another way to say that is trance, yeah. hypnosis, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the most profound lessons that I uh, have gleaned in my 15 years, I think, of practicing hypnosis professionally is that trance is trance. The state that you go into in the hypnotic process is valuable in and of itself. In other words, you don't actually need any content at all just going into that state where you surrender and relax the judgmental, critical, worrying, rational part of your brain. You shut that thing off, take a vacation for a little bit, and then go into the surrendered openness that is the trance state. That is beneficial by itself. And movies are quite possibly the most powerful hypnotic tool that humanity has ever created yes um so that benefit that you get of just going into it there's one caveat the one asterisk and this is something i keep repeating in in every episode is you can sabotage that benefit very simply and it's the way that i think most people sabotage the the biggest benefit that you get from watching movies and tv and that is if you're judging yourself while you're doing it if there's any part of your self, your unconscious mind that is sitting there thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be doing something else. This is not a good use of my time. Oh, I'm being lazy or I'm wasting my time sitting here watching movies when I should be doing something else. And by the way, maybe you should. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should be doing something else right now. Yeah. But my point is, if, if, if you never have that experience, if you're always running that pattern, whenever you sit down, you are robbing yourself of the, the potential psychedelic transformative benefit of stories. Yeah. I want to be clear that he said that, that if you are judging, you're watching, you're out of, you're out of the ability to have it be meaningful for you. I think there's a lot of power. So we talk about like 
we'll we'll talk about surrendering and how to do that and how to get into that state where you're allowing things. I think that there there's wisdom too in the things that you're not allowing. I think we were joking with me that I was hate watching this show last week. I think there's a lot of power in paying attention to your resistance and mm. the things that you're judgmental about and the things yeah. that you're shouting at your TV. I think you can have breakthroughs even if you're not specifically enjoying what's mm. going on. And and one of the mm. one of the shows I when when we ask each other, like, what'd you watch? One of the shows I watched, I think that was one of the powerful things that happened for me was getting a new sense of both the trance and and the resistance and the grumpiness and as it was coming out of my face and having a part of myself watching and witnessing mm. the things that I was being grumpy at or judgmental about, that is part of how these things can be empowering. Just putting that out. So, so having a judgy voice and resistance showing up while you're watching things doesn't necessarily mean that you're not getting value from what you're watching. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Nicholas, what are you watching? Uh, well, I'm still going through Altered Carbon season two. Uh, we made it a couple more episodes through, enjoying it very much. Um, uh, I don't have a lot of comments on it because I'm kind of <laughs> waiting to see where the story goes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's still fun to watch. Um, there, there, there was one one part in it that I thought, if, for those of you who don't know the storyline at all, that, that it takes place in the future where humanity has gained the ability to like download your entire personality and memories and everything into mm-hmm. like a little like USB uh, disc, <laughs> sure. and then you can slip it into different bodies. So you can go and like you can swap bodies. Um, and effectively you can become immortal this way. You live forever. And, um, there was one part in the show when they did this like facial recognition thing where they were like, like pulling up memories of people from his, uh, from his, uh, unconscious. And then they were able to identify them based on their face. And I did kind of, I was like, what does facial recognition mean in a world where everybody can jump into different bodies? Like, what do you, what is that? That, that felt like a little. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially. I, I I think it must mean whatever the person thinks their face looks like. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Time emotionally, like how they've stored the memories. Yeah. Which essentially means that none of these people actually look the way that we think that they look. Yeah, I mean, who knows what anybody looks at that point like at that point. So I I don't suppose I'm gonna spoil any of Altered Carbon having with what we've said. I had this curiosity after finishing season two. Not that I I appreciate nakedness. <laughs> what I'm curious about in any show that has uh future bodies, would they not be in some robe would they would would storage facilities of clones really be that naked and also i have a curiosity about future sexuality too because this is a huge theme in this particular show and other futuristic things become more sort of porn and prostitution infested like most Mm -hmm. of the future future realized what is it uh is it fifth element and what's the one with arnold schwarzenegger and total recall many of these 
futurized space. I just, as, as much as you're about to talk about Picard not being the utopia that was whatever show he was in before, I don't remember which Star Trek he was because it's not in my lineage. So I think it'd be really interesting if we could imagine, if we're going to imagine other universes and planets and worlds, couldn't there be a world where if a woman's alone, she's not likely to be raped? Isn't it possible that there would be a, a space or planet where women and men are treated completely? Are we not creative enough there, there's a, a couple of episodes kind of, of Star Trek that address history. the exact issue that you're talking about. <laughs> That's a little ridiculous. And I don't mind how naked things are in these shows, but they're a very specific kind of naked that only presupposes that we will continue to not only be awful, but get worse. And that that kind of bothers me. Hmm. You mean awful specifically, like worse around sex and sexuality? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But and is violence. that so? You think that's present, like in the culture, but not with the heroes necessarily. I. You seem like you're thinking of, of something those, specific, and I'm not. Those, I, maybe I haven't got that far. In all in of those season. examples, in all of the examples, I mean, this is even from Altered Carbon season one. In mm-hmm. all of these examples, there's a very violent sexuality that gets exacerbated and maybe that's maybe that's a point that they're making in like fifth element and these different examples i don't know i don't know i'm just thinking about it back here that that we don't necessarily become more evolved in these future guesses well the stories are being written by people now (laughs) oh no i realize it's not very creative yeah yeah well i think curious i think like it seems like if you're if if that was the story, that would have to be the entire story. If like if that's an element of the story, we no. somebody would write the entire futuristic thing about like, look, we figured this out. Yeah. No. See, but that is my point from last week about bad writing, mm. where you have to preach about what you did to fix the thing mm-hmm. rather than just show up treating people differently and having the world exist differently. Have you ever seen Demolition Man? It's been, oh yeah, with the shells. Yeah, okay, so the shells were something that they don't explain at all, but then they also have the the sex scene. You remember that? Yes. Like the exchange of bodily fluids has been outlawed, so sex becomes this thing where you put on like a visor or like a head thing and like connect on your in your brain that is one example yeah that i have seen of it different i think the show the the 100 is also very different too without specifically saying hey we solved this uh, i never watched um what's the wachowski tv show sense eight oh i didn't write that down i haven't gotten to around to that yet but i i know that i need to because everything the wachowskis do um, yeah. yeah, I mean that's a way different topic that I'm bringing up mm-hmm. that I'll talk about <laughs> no. later. Did you want to? You had what was the other show you were watching? Did you? Uh, I'm hate watching Picard, but I really don't need to say anything about it. It's terrible. <laughs> I hate it. 
Yeah. Um, and then the other one, this, this uh, short comment on it, I've been like comfort food watching Simpsons episodes. Cause we got, um, we, we switched to Verizon and got like a year free of Apple or no, of, um, of Disney plus. Oh, um, so, uh, I've been watching all the Simpsons episodes are on there and, um, uh, the season three through eight are like considered the classic seasons where it's actually like genius and amazing. And one of the things that's been really surprising is um, how much my 10 year old is into it. Um, that he like really like he often does not watch the shows that we're watching. Like we have stuff that we watch together. Like we did a Marvel movie marathon leading up to uh, uh the the last one's end game and um uh the one after that <laughs> um <laughs> no that was it infinity war and end game yeah um we watched all the marvel movies and yes. um and then that way i'd seen pierce and i had seen most of them more than once and then liz could watch some of the ones that she'd missed and watch all of them leading up to that and um and so we, we do like family movie time and family tv shows uh, but normally if we're watching something like altered carbon, he's not interested and, yeah. um, and he'll just go hang out and do his own thing. But when I turned on Simpsons, he watched like six episodes in a row with me. And there's a couple of takeaways that I have from it. Number one is, um, it's hard to wrap your head around how revolutionary this was at mm. the time mm -hmm. that the jokes now are so tame that their heart, the some of the things that would have been like, oh, I can't believe they just did that on television in a cartoon. Cartoons right. are for children. And like now it does, you don't even register. Like there's moments where there's like a pause for a laugh after a joke. And you're like, why is it pausing? Oh, that was supposed to be a joke. Oh, like <laughs> it's really hard to remind yourself how cutting edge. I mean, the, the Simpsons was the Rick and Morty of its time. Yeah. And it's certainly not that now, um, but it's still good. Like a lot of the jokes like certainly hold up. And, uh, and then the other thing that's been really fun is um, it's really a smart show. There's a lot of jokes I didn't get when I was younger, I wasn't allowed to watch the Simpsons when I was a kid, but when I was a, in my late teens, early twenties, and I was like, Oh, Oh, the Simpsons is important. So I started watching it. Um, then there was a lot of stuff that even then I didn't get or understand having yeah. been extremely sheltered, um, which might be a nice segue into one of my movies if you want. <laughs> um, but uh, explaining the jokes to my 10 year old, Oh. has been really, really fun that there'll be a joke. I'll laugh and he'll be like, I don't get it. What's funny about that? And I'll pause it and I'll explain it. And he'll be like, oh, I get it. That's um, awesome. And it's yeah, it that's actually really fun. And I, I feel like it's it's like um, it, like so many comedians or people who develop a good sense of humor can point to the comedy that influenced them. Like, where did you learn what a joke was? Where did yeah. you learn how to set that up? And like Monty Python, for example, is like, like everyone who worked on the Simpsons grew up on Monty Python. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and same with South Park, like uh, South Park grew up on the Simpsons and to a certain extent, um, so, yeah, um, 
Simpsons has been fun. Um, and it's it <laughs> it holds up and it's very much just like put it on in the background. Nice. Yeah. Ask me what I'm. This is what am I? Well, watching? what are you watching? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm not even sure why I said yes to this. I I think I saw several people posting "Love Is Blind" on Facebook, and so it was in my head, and then there it was in my feed. And I, the premise of this show, it's a Netflix experiment, hosted by Nick Lacey and. I'm just going to say his wife because I don't know her name because he was a singer of some group. And maybe was he with Jessica Simpson? I don't know. So when you say experiment, is that how they're billing it or are you calling it an experiment? Yes, they're calling it an experiment. So love and love is blind is this experiment of having so it's filmed it's shot in Atlanta, Atlanta. And I didn't quite get that until like six, seven episodes in. So they took a group of men and women and they set them up in this building where there were pods in the center. The, the men and women were separated. I think they were 20-ish. And what they do is they go on liter- like blind dates. There's, these pods are set up. They're rooms where they communicate and there's a wall between them. And so they go on dates to, to find out if they can fall in love with who someone is on the inside without having seen them, without having seen them. That's that would be interesting enough, but raised up from that, the bar is raised higher that, that they will have the opportunity. They have 10 days to go on all these dates with these people and then propose marriage. If they fall in love with someone propose marriage before you see them, before you see them, and then they get to love see the premise. each other. Yeah. And then they get to see each other uh, and are whisked away on a romantic vacation so that they can find out if their emotional connection is also a physical connection, which is that's amazing. And then they have four weeks to plan their wedding, to integrate their lives, to meet their families, to plan their wedding. And at the end of the four weeks, they either say that they do or they don't. That is the premise of this show. And so when I was saying earlier that part of the process is also paying attention to the the times that you find yourself yelling at the screen, (laughs) I think it's really interesting. On one level, there's there's this familiarity that I have having watched a ton of romantic comedies. Uh, All of the all of the, the Efron sisters movies with Meg Ryan, you know, the sleep is in Seattle and those, those kinds of movies of the nineties when rom-coms were a thing and popular. I don't think rom-coms are maybe coming back, but they're not as important to culture right now as they were in the nineties. We repeatedly see people fall in love. All of the little constraints that happen before they fall in love or they admit that they're in love. And then the movie stops. That's most of the movies. They never get to the part after they've found each other and said yes to this love and this connection to actually build a relationship. So most of us are programmed when we talk about the movies and TV shows that we're made of, we're programmed for this like tension before the yes. Mm-hmm. And then it all ends. And that's even, and then it says happily ever after. And then you're just like, that's what we all expect relationships to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even television shows do the will, they won't, they will, they won't. They, oh, and at the end of it, they, for seven they seasons. Say yes 
<laughs> their love, but you don't necessarily see them together. I guess Bones maybe has them together, but I stopped watching after that. Right. <laughs> but oh, only yeah, because I wonder, I, was... I wonder why the shows do that. <laughs> and I, but it wasn't because they were together. It was because I, there was a lot of seasons and it's that crime. You know, I just got a little tired of women being murdered and kidnapped <laughs> over and over and over and over and over oh, again. Yeah, a little formulaic. <sighs> you know, the buddy cop show of women being murdered. Yay! Uh, let's keep perpetuating that. So, so this show is interesting because it takes us beyond that. And then we get to see a lot of people's insecurities. We get to see a lot of people's ability to communicate or not and how that plays out, whether people are willing to, to reveal themselves openly and tell the truth, what happens when, when real life shows up and, and they start closing down their hearts when they, when they had opened, how people shift, what other people's opinions do to a relationship, the, the sanctity of that, what I've heard is called couple bubble. It's very fascinating. And what I think is also very interesting is theoretically the premise is that every single one of these men and women are humans who want to get married and believe something about marriage enough to show up to do this thing and want to fall in love in a particular way. And I guess, I guess the spoiler is that every single one of the people that they put in this experiment are TV attractive. So the odds that people would be like disappointed, disappointed, mm. they didn't they didn't put that into the mix. Right. Which is, uh, I guess, interesting and cool. Right. But yeah, I kept having a lot of my own uh, really. I found myself being really challenged around what we've decided marriage equals the mm. whole like I, I want to do some research to be like, where did the bachelorette and bachelor parties come out? And all this asking permit, like this structure of this, this is like all of the people that I know that are married have a very different marriage from other people. <laughs> and I find it very strange that we've theoretically agreed upon what marriage is. And so I've, I've just been paying attention to my own, like, <laughs> and, and I think that they also, specifically found people who are not only willing to be married and think that they know what that means and think that that's an agreement they're all agreeing to. And then two, these are people who do want children. Like at no point did that become a challenge for any of the people in their conversations, which I also thought was fascinating. Hmm. Anyway, like but not it's, a single person. I mean, maybe they did pre-interviews with people. I mean, obviously I, well, they probably yeah. did. I think so they, they, did they probably pick picked people. certain degree of compatibility, which that's kind of interesting. There's already like a, an assumption of um, matchmaking going on that just sure. to get in the group, they're going to be like, well, we're not going to pick anybody who's like, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example that isn't going to be offensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, somebody who they didn't who pick any sure white supremacists. Is... How about that? <laughs> Yeah, potentially not. Uh, right. Well, and that's the, that's the premise of figuring out whether uh, money, background, those sorts of things will get in the way of their hope right. was that people would. That they found people who were open. I mean, essentially, the people who would show up for something like that are right. open to the idea that love is blind and they want to find that. And they have their own personal reasons for wanting to not be judged primarily on their looks 
And I just find it fascinating. I just, I could not stop watching it. Just to be clear, this was not a movie. This is like a reality TV show. Yeah, I think there are 10 episodes and then they do a follow-up and they're all like Um, about an hour long. Can I let my geek flag fly for a second? Sure. So as soon as you started describing the premise, yeah, I thought of a twist. <laughs> and the twist, do you know what the Turing test is? I've heard it. So the Turing oh. test is uh, something that Alan Turing um, came up with. And it's the, the premise that if you were in a room and you were being, um, you, you, you were communicating with text via text. So you couldn't hear a voice and you couldn't see a face, um, but you were communicating via text with an artificial intelligence. Um, passing the Turing test is an artificial intelligence that would be able to convince most people that it was a real person. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so that's what I thought is, is the, the premise of this show. But then at some point, the twist is there's no person there. It's just an artificial intelligence. Season two. But ex- season two of Love is Blind, Ex Machina. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So that's what I was watching. <laughs> I I don't suppose I have a, a lot of insights. I did. I did get to experience my ideas around. It was really interesting and wonderful to see open-hearted men because again from this space of watching a lot of rom-coms from the 90s i think i was 23 when i was doing a binge watching session and i recognized wait a second nearly everything i watch has men going out of their way for the love of a woman i wonder if men actually like women wait and also is it possible that they're capable of actually falling in love because much of the things that that i watched are full of unavailable men with closed hearts and it's it's not so different that seems to be the trope of of manhood but it was weird that the trope of manhood is this unavailableness and then their hearts crack open just a smidge and then right. suddenly they're in a relationship and married. And, and and so to even just like turn that on its head and you wonder in my own life if men are actually capable of love and what are these stories that I have, like men don't actually like women or want families. Ah, breaking that open somewhere around 23 and then watching this show where they actually do have vulnerable and open men which is sexy as fuck by the way and still not very representative of what we get to watch on tv and there's a show travelers which is also canadian produced which i've brought up before there's there are several very sort of evolved male characters on that show who have open hearts and show up differently in the world than what we're used to seeing. Mm. And so that was one of the things that I, I felt was a a powerful thing to get to witness is getting to see real men in that state of openness and, and love and then watch, watch and notice when they would close their energy down and be protective and and the switch is very fascinating. Mm. Mm. That's what I was watching. The um, 
that 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 belief that you became aware of the programming mm-hmm. around like wait a minute uh, like are all men just unavailable is that just the way that it is um the trope the programming goes both ways like men get the programming that that's how you're supposed to be mm-hmm. and then women get the programming oh expect this from men um but one of the messages like i picked up growing up uh, very conservative religious as well as media and movies and tv was that women felt that way about sex mm-hmm. that no women actually want to have sex that sex is a transaction right that women tolerate and it's a thing that they hold on to and they'll give to you and and to finally like feel the scales fall from my eyes to use a biblical metaphor (laughs) Um, and like to see the code of the matrix and to finally realize, wait a minute, women want sex too. What, 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 what? Like, yeah. 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 And they won't, you don't have to like cajole them and like, like, like tear us under the trick or manipulate or, you know, use game or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So strange the programming. Uh, so that's, I mean, the, the the reveal of the the romantic comedy thing. That's part of some of my programming pre pre awakening. So I watched a yeah. lot of that stuff. Well, um, just wait for Liz to join Enlightened Couch Potato because she has like she has so much material she wants to talk about on that subject that I've seriously right. considered that she might need to have her own channel just for that stuff <laughs> that can be like associated with Enlightened Couch Potato. But um, yeah. yeah, she's going to be excited to talk about all that. Yeah, we have hidden teammates that will yes. in, in the digitals as we create them, uh, the website and mm-hmm. uh, our Facebook group, which we will decide how to do. So what were your... Do we want to keep going with, uh, yeah, with what were your movies awakening? that made us? Yeah. It's pre-awakening, post-awakening. Ah, maybe it's threading through. Okay, well, let me talk about one. So <laughs> lately I've been... I've been Because we started the podcast, so I've been thinking about this, this stuff a lot more. And as, as I'm sort of compiling the actual step-by-step process of how to do this because mm-hmm. the podcast is really us just kind of shooting the shit and figure figuring this out yeah but eventually like this is probably going to end up being a book that we write together or and or like a training course um where or even like a coaching program where we can coach teach people how to coach other people through this to use movies and tv as a transformational tool so as i've been thinking about all that stuff i've noticed that i've been expanding my ideas uh, like I thought I had it figured out sure and I thought I had a pretty narrow band of like okay here's how you do it and (laughs) now I'm starting to realize oh it's actually much broader than that there are different strategies to suck the value out of different types of movies and my strategy tends to be very uh, much about the types of things that I am attracted to Sure. So this yeah. this next movie I'm going to mention is one that I I got a very different kind of healing from than mm. than the typical movies. And I mentioned being What did I say? <laughs> I said there's a transition that I can make here. Um it was something about sheltered, I think is the word yeah, that I used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So did we talk about the movie Blast from the Past yet? Yes, you did. You said that oh, that was did? the closest to 
your yeah okay well then i'll mark that one as so blast from the past is a movie with brandon fraser where he basically spends 30 years living in a, a bomb shelter in a bunker underneath his house and then comes out and is like introduced to the world but he's sort of 30 years behind culture and the times and um it's a kind of silly lovely movie i i still like it in a yeah. lot of ways um some kind of cliche tropes and whatnot, but still pretty mm -hmm. funny and, and enjoyable and, um, and definitely good spirited in, in a lot of ways. Like he comes out and he's a very sweet person and that kind of wins the world over to him. And, um, uh, that movie resonated with me very much because I was like, Oh, I am like that. Like I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, homeschooled, running around in Christmas trees in my bare foot. Um, Barefoot? I only have one. <laughs> Just the bare, barefoot. The other one had. A, uh, okay, so that that too. was that was the first one. Uh, one thing that I notice as I go through the list um, uh, is there's a probably the single most consistent theme in movies that have a significant impact for me, mm -hmm. pre waking up or post, is that they are largely about waking up. Oh. <laughs> They yeah. are stories that are about that are asking questions about consciousness, mm -hmm. about free will, um, about philosophy. Um, and uh, so an example, uh, one of my favorite movies, pre waking up, post waking up is The Truman Show. Oh, yeah. With Jim Carrey. Now, I, I uh, we should do a whole episode just talking about the depth of Jim Carrey's movies because <laughs> he has serious movies. But what's really interesting is even if you look at his comedies like Liar Liar or um, Bruce Almighty or Yes Man, these yeah. are movies that are funny, but there's a depth there. There's a moral to this story that is very um, profound. And I, I, you get the sense, especially now with the sort of Jim Carrey that's emerged um, more recently in the last few years, you get the sense that that's very much on purpose, that he well, is trying to pick movies post like The Mask and Ace Ventura. Like after that, he was like, I want to do movies that are actually going to impact the world. Like he's intentionally trying to positively brainwash people with yeah. the stuff that he makes. And there's his director, whose name I don't recall, who did a documentary that I think is still on Netflix. I don't know if it's called Waking Up, and I don't know if it's called The Gentleman Who Had All of That. So he does a bunch of all these liar, liar and those early movies with Jim Carrey and then goes on a spiritual quest to try to figure out his own migraines and other things that were his health challenges going on. Hmm. I don't know. And about this. so the director of a lot of Jim Carrey's movies is also someone who was spiritually minded and on a spiritual path. Huh. So you might enjoy his. I piece. should check that out. There's another documentary about Jim Carrey that's about how he uh, the, the process of making the movie Man on the Moon, where he played um, Charlie Kaufman, Charlie or Andy Kaufman, Andy, Andy Kaufman. Kaufman, Charlie Kaufman's the writer, yeah. um, Andy Kaufman, the comedian, where uh, Jim Carrey was basically in character for the entire time that he was mm -hmm. playing that. And he kind of went nuts and then sort of came out the other side being not remembering who Jim Carrey was. Yeah. And um, it's pretty fascinating. I know we've, we've talked about this before. So behind the scenes, 
Nicholas and I have had lots of conversations about Jim Carrey in front of these scenes. I will let you know that it'll be interesting to have me on that episode about Jim Carrey because I think that the method acting is non-consensual, non-acting. And Mm. I think Jim Carrey is often praised when he is in triggered states. And uh, I... I can appreciate that he is a gentleman who's had trauma and he's healing and he's on a path and he has intentions to be a a good force in the world. And as a person who's traumatized, I think he's often quite narcissistic. And one of those people who is overly celebrated in our culture, Hmm. having not completely healed himself. And there are a lot of these humans and so it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm willing to have the conversation. And I think that um, my, non, my non-polite way is that I don't necessarily think that we all should be sucking at the cock of Jim Carrey as much as, as we do. And I realize that, that there's, there are steps towards enlightenment and he is on the path and many, many people who are also hurt and hurting people will find him and then move forward along their path. And so that's great. That's good, too. I'm a little done as a female bodied person with celebrating uh, people who are problematic. I find him problematic and mm-hmm. I am willing to participate in a conversation where we talk about the philosophies he's taken and and opening our minds because God knows I have a lifetime of learning from people who teach things that they're not following themselves and knowing mm-hmm. how to dismantle that and use it in my own life. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the, I forgot how much Jim Carrey triggered you before I brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot. We so. can't necessarily I think the common threads between Jim Carrey and Robin Williams and the fact that the both of them are not so dissimilar and one of them did not make it. Mm. Is- yeah. I don't see them as similar at all. Really. Um, not that I'm, I'm saying Robin Williams didn't have his trauma obviously and mm-hmm. his, um, his progress, um, his own journey through that. And, and also a commitment to telling stories that, that have some kind of, um, weight to them and, and make a difference in the world. Um, but I, I see Jim Carrey as being different and, um, I don't know, like maybe that's my own personal way of seeing it. He also doesn't trigger me the way that he does you. So like, I see that he goes through the world in a way that, that can be very, uh, um, confrontational for people. Yes. Yes. Um, but I like that. Like I, I, I like that. And I think your non-consent point hits home. Like, I definitely think that there is a um, uh, a conversation to be had there. So anyway, yeah. Truman Show is a story about a guy who is realizing that the world is an illusion. And that premise is rampant through um, a lot of Eastern mythology and even Hindu, like the idea that the world is this thing called Maya, which mm-hmm. is an illusion. It is it is the matrix and it's it's not real. 
and it's all something we're making up. And um, when we have these stories that are a, a metaphor where it's literally the world is an illusion and you're watching him come to the realization and then spoilers, that moment at the end of the movie when he fights through the storm and the voice of God and all this stuff. And then that black door that he has to walk through into, into the unknown yeah. is that was a transcendent moment for me. And I'll grant you, I don't think it was the first time I watched it. I think oh. it was maybe the second or even third time I watched the movie when I had woken up enough myself to, to, to get what was going on there. Um, yeah. Yeah. You love that movie. That movie, Spotless Mind, and the one with Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, I think, is just contracted now forevermore to be God. Yeah. What is, is that? Is that Evan Almighty? Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty. Evan Almighty is a sequel. Yeah. Where, but, but, but it was just uh, um, Steve Carell as Noah. <laughs> okay. Not, not didn't didn't have the magic of the first one for me. Sure. 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 Uh, uh, did, did you have some movies you want to share? No, I, what, 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 I, I got lots maybe. more, but <laughs> yeah, I was thinking pre waking up. I was thinking of the like themes and moments that were that powerful for me in my waking. So I mentioned six feet under as being, I think last, last week I just mentioned six feet under as a show that shift shifted how television shows work. I think six feet under 24 and lost really changed the way that TV six feet under proved that you could be quirky and weird and have an entire concept. Alan ball was signed to five years. He knew that he had the five years to create that show. So he told a, 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 a whole arc that he had intended. I know lost did not know that they, how long right. they were going to, to go. And we talked about how they didn't create an arc, but they also did weird TV where in the past people didn't know they didn't always show their episodes in series in sequence because they had like four episodes where they had to move TV shows around in weird ways. Oh, it's so stupid when the network broadcast. does that. Yeah. But that's what had existed before 24 and lost created a platform that required you to watch yeah, you having to watched it. the first yeah. episode and they never repeated things. You, you, that's why they had to put the thing at the beginning of last episode, this, because, right. because you would just drop in in the middle of a show and they would be sort of rehashing things in, yeah. in the formula, things like Buffy and Xena and X-Files, they were all pre- serialized TV in the sense that they had maybe four episodes that could be dropped in out of order. And they also often used to have that like episode that would be a com compilation of previous episodes. Clip shows. Clip shows. Yay. So it's come to this. There's, there's a <laughs> Simpsons episode called So It's Come to This. That is yeah. the, the first clip episode that they did. <laughs> so, um, so Six Feet Under was the first and only show that I, so I was back, I was in Portland and I think my best friend and my dad and I happened to watch it together and we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. So we invited other people and we backtracked. And so we had a group of five of us that would show up every Sunday to watch this together. And I think we watched two 
seasons that way. And I would like do six feet under and then I would go out and host karaoke. And that was my, those were my Sunday oh, evenings. Oh my God, that sounds awesome. So wait, hold on. My girlfriend has mentioned six feet under a couple of times. And I honestly don't know. I, I keep getting it confused with a show called Dead Like Me. And I don't sure. think they have anything to do with each other at all. No, but, they don't. So six feet under. What is the premise? Like the you, premise you said, is, it's this quirky premise. What is the show? Radical Sun Returns. So uh, Nathaniel, I'm not remembering the last name right now for some reason. So Nate, the eldest son, returns when his father, who was a funeral director, uh, dies suddenly. And their family runs a funeral home in, I think, LA or Santa Monica. So he comes back. And they need him to help. He comes back from Seattle and they need him to help uh, run the funeral parlor or whatever for a while. It's supposed to be temporary. And it's that adventure of his return to <coughs> the career that his, you know, his brother is followed in the footsteps of his father already. And he ran screaming away from the, the family business off on some other adventure. So it's sort of this gentleman who's who's escaped and is sort of worldly and has traveled and kind of a, he's more of a wandering spirit that comes back to this sort of, I mean, th their house is really above the crematorium and uh, where they do the embalming. And then they have like, it, it's a display space. So it's a funeral home that the family runs. And I actually knew a friend in college who lived above a, uh, a mortuary. And, um, and when we would go over, I went over to his place a couple times and there, it, and we would be like, yeah, there's dead bodies downstairs. And part of the reason he got discounted rent because he was above it, but he yeah. was also supposed to like keep out for it because apparently people break into places like that. Oh, sure. Like, sure. So, um, chemicals, fluids, right. Things. Bodies, I guess. Um, so, yeah. So yeah. anyway, like it was fun to go over and have parties at his house and be like, eh, like one of the things that was really great about that. And we remember we have to remember that Alan Ball is the director, write, writer and director of American Beauty, which was also kind of outstanding for being dark and truthful and slow in a particular way. And quirky and quirky. So, so wait, so so the um, American Beauty guy did the whole TV show. Yeah, they do wow. end up with several other writers and directors, but it was his his whole show arc. He knew so, exactly what it, he was doing for the five wasn't years. Wasn't American Beauty directed by Sam Mendes? But I think Alan Ball wrote it. Oh, we wrote it. Okay, okay, got it, got it. So, so yeah, it's quirky and dark and truthful. And I don't think TV was allowing characters to be as fully rounded and thought out in the sense that most of the television people weren't, they weren't overtly ugly and complex. Uh, you mean character wise? Characters weren't very complicated prior mm -hmm. to this show. Yeah, One note, to, two dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, characters are a little ugly. I mean, I did grow up watching like 90s, the 90s trope, the kind of comedian that's based off of probably what's his douche. Um, 
Oh, who's oh, the yeah, yeah. problematic What's director? Yeah, he's great. The problematic director of many, many films. Woody Allen. Thank you, Woody, Woody Allen. It's going to say so Roman the humor, Polanski. <laughs> the humor of the uh, sort of acerbic and uh, self-deprecated one. Socially awkward. Socially oh, awkward gosh. guy. <laughs> that, you know, Seinfeld and Mad About You. Like Mad About You is a nicer version of the same kind of comedy, but there was this trope that the curmudgeon could be kind of an asshole, but loved anyway, which was a big, it was a, it's a big thing. I'm glad we've moved from, but it was a, it was a big part of my own personality for a very long time. Just thinking that I could just be an asshole and all of my real friends would still love me and stick around. (laughs) Turns out that's um, true ish, (laughs) but not a good way to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I have others, but but I'd love to hear more from your list. Well, so what was significant about Six Feet Under for you? Significant about Six Feet Under is other other than like it it, it heralded a new kind of storytelling and TV. It was phenomenally real in in dropping into family dysfunction, dropping mm. into people learning how to communicate truthfully honestly confront the past that people didn't like talk about so it's it's watching this family that was full of secrets and they never talked to each other have this person that had gone out in the world and had new rules mm-hmm. come back and be a catalyst for shaking up and actually talking about their trauma mm-hmm. and actually healing and facing each other in a way that was different. And I have a lot of, there were a lot of secrets and not talking in, in my version of my dysfunctional family. I think I talked about how talk shows actually talking about the traumas, bringing them out into the world. This was one of those first shows to just be self-reflective and allow themselves to be very dark. There are, there are characters that make a lot of really self-destructive decisions, and then you have to see them pay for it. It's not, I, I guess there's a character that might be thought of as the um, manic pixie dream girl setup. And generally in a movie, the manic pixie dream girl shows up and it's entertaining and the hero character gets his like learning from that, but we never really see the fallout for her. Uh, what is that? There's a, there's, I mean, there's all of the movies that are about that. And, and there's, there's a, there are many characters that go through their manic pitch. Every movie moments. with Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was just thinking of um, the Kate Hudson movie where she's the groupie that's yeah. actually based on someone who's here in Portland and, and is rad. Uh, but yeah, so in this, in this sense, you actually see, you see the behind the scenes. It's weird to say that you see the behind the scenes of the kinds of things you used to see. Mm. So like dropping the curtain, even on television and the stories that we've told. So they just keep the story going past the point when it would normally stop. Right. Yeah. So it seems like there's one way, one strategy or one type of story that can be really valuable is a more like we're revealing uh, characters in situations that, that parallel our own. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost like, 
learn from these mistakes, like learn from this example or, and, and not only mistakes. Cause you're saying like some people are actually voicing their trauma and other people right. are making mistakes, but more realistic storytelling where you're learning by living through this experience with other people. And it's not yeah. the superhero kind of thing, or it's not fantasy where there's metaphor for your own journey. It's more, yeah. it's more meant to be taken on a, on a kind of literal level. Totally. Um, but it's speaking to like, oh, is your life like this? Or maybe your life isn't quite this bad. Like, um, right. have you seen Ozark? Oh, yeah. Ozark is one that is like, ha, 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 for me, like I watch it and I love it. And I'm just like, oh, when, <laughs> and it, it sometimes it feels a little too real almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, um, there's another show that came to mind called the, I like horror um, a lot, but I don't like, I don't like gore for the sake of gore. And I'm not that big into monster movies. I'm into horror where it's, it's like, it's a way to elevate the story and to elevate the excitement and energy of the story. But the story would be good without the horror part of it. Sure. Okay. Um, so there's a, a TV show, Netflix show called the haunting of Hill house. I have not heard of that. And it's a ghost story. Ooh, ghosts. <laughs> um, which I'm not always into. But the way that this is told is that it is a story about this dysfunctional family and how the, how their um, way of being with each other has has trickled down into all these results and then them sort of coming back together because somebody dies and then having to face this this trauma in the past and i i i love being able to like take a horror movie and be like well what if it wasn't a ghost what if it was alcoholism right like what if you took that thing out and you substituted it with this what if the ghost is a metaphor for something else like i i remember someone with an interpretation of um the exorcist which is actually apparently it's implied more in the book Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, there's a few scenes that apparently the director fought pretty hard to make sure they stay in that you're not quite clear what they're about, but the, the interpretation of the story is that, um, she, that, um, Reagan, the, um, the girl in the exorcist was being sexually molested and mm. that that's actually what was going on. And that's what the whole story is about. Obviously like makes the a lot more sense now spinning the head and the, um, the, uh, projectile, um, split pea soup, uh, notwithstanding and levitating beds and all that. So obviously they take it to the next level, but it's this idea that there's actually something real in here. And then the supernatural part is like wrapped around it. Um, anyway, when you were describing the idea of like this dysfunctional family coming back together and airing their stuff and working through it, um, it made me think of that haunting of Hill House. It was, it was good. I like yeah. it. Well, it's on par with the things I was saying last week about the kinds of indie flicks and movies that 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 have a beautiful way of 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 showing truth, truth of, yeah. of challenges of what life can feel like and, and drop you in situationally that way. Um, I have other things we do. We do. We're running up at three and I want to check in because we have other can stuff I to say. Can I rapid fire a couple of them? Yeah. And then, then I think I can be done with my pre-waking up list finally. So um, I think some of the earliest movies that I really took and was like, like early in my life that I watched that I was like, oh, this, this means something. This is important. 
um, was um, Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. I watched that at a pretty young age. My parents kind of sat me down and we watched it as a family and then discussed it afterwards. Not at the same time as Roots, but in a similar way where it was like, this is important. You need to know about this. And then it prompted a lot of conversation. And that that was an important, like, world-changing movie because like to realize like this really happened and the other one was saving private ryan which i saw significantly older and i watched that in the theater and i i remember hearing the stories about like vets that would go to the and they couldn't sit through the opening scene they had to leave because it was so real and then to just like the way that it portrays death and war in this just like awkwardly real kind of way that it it it's the opposite of glorifying violence um and uh that was really significant on a more practical level uh the last one is a, is a story um i i it's <laughs> spider-man 2 like to, not to change gears too much so first toby mcguire spider-man movie was great i really yeah. enjoyed it i went and saw it in the theater and i was super excited for the second one right and i went to a midnight showing so this happened at about 2 30 in the morning um when i when i was watching the second one there is a scene spoilers it's been around a long time if you haven't fucking seen it go watch it it's, it's great it still holds up it's still one of the best like dr octopus um and it's uh uh sam raimi wonderful toby mcguire looks like he's 35 so like <laughs> uh but um but other than that really wonderful movie great yeah. in in all kinds of ways Sweet. there is a scene at the end of the movie when um he <clears throat> he is he's been um trying to win over the girl right okay throughout the whole uh, Mary Jane. He's been trying to win over Mary Jane throughout the whole movie and he keeps disappointing her, but he keeps disappointing her because he's Spider-Man and he can't tell her that he's Spider-Man. And so then she gets kidnapped by Dr. Octopus and they fight and then they have this touching moment when Dr. Octopus like rips his mask off and he's like, um, like, but I, I, I don't want you to die. And he's like, but I'm going to sacrifice myself. And so Dr. Octopus has this redemption moment at the very end. And like, he takes the sun that he was creating down into the water so the whole city is saved and then there's kind of this little bit of a uh, of a down note and then all of a sudden the camera pans over and you realize that mary jane is seeing him without his mask on and he looks over and sees her and and then like the camera does this like pull zoom and cut and like and you're just like no and then and then she like she gets it she really in that moment the implication is like oh i understand why and like all this and then like this wall starts falling, like it's going to crush her and he goes over and saves her. And it's like this very profound mo- moment. And yeah. I remember crying so hard in that moment. And it, and I like, I couldn't stop thinking about it for weeks afterwards. And I realized that that moment, that idea that I'm, I'm disappointing someone but but you don't know why you don't know yes. what I'm going through. You don't yes. know the secret that I have of this burden that I'm carrying and that I wanted to be like I wanted that moment. I wanted that moment when when uh, when they would see, oh, I see what's going on. This is an interesting one for me because this does not resonate with me at all anymore. And I, it was a profoundly healing, transformative experience in that moment 
But as I've grown, I've come to realize that that was based on a deep sense of martyrdom in myself. That (laughs) That the reason that resonated with me so much was because of like a fucked up childish perspective that I had that I wanted someone like I didn't want to have to say I didn't want to have to communicate about it I just wanted to be revealed to the world in in, that uh, it's hard to explain but it's one of those moments where it was profound when I saw it and then I grew and now I'm like yeah it doesn't it doesn't touch me the way that it did before because I, I don't have those same issues which I'm glad about. I moved past those things. Yeah, I have a reflection of that from post-awakening moments of watching Once Upon a Time Mm. in the sense that the story that if only everyone can have that peel back the mask moment that explains why we've done anything that we've done, Mm The, the idea that we're all doing the best that we can with the resources that we have. And, you know, if, if you knew that the person who cut you off was trying to get to the hospital, you'd be like, go, right. go, go, right? I had those moments around my relationship with my mother, having watched over and over again, different instances of parents making decisions in the worst of circumstances in this show, Once Upon a Time, these like fairy tale and then they were the people who were theoretically evil or villains, you know, making choices that affected their children and realizing because this was one of those shows that peels back the, the curtain and, or, you know, tears off the mask and re- reveals who these people were and the situations and circumstances they were under. And that, that you know, they had had their hearts broken and they were hurt in particular ways and didn't have other choices or resources. And they were making the best decisions that they could at the time. I had one of those shivering moments of recognizing that some, some story that I had told myself a very long time ago that equaled that my mother didn't love me Mm. watching this show. I had this shivering, crying, sobbing moment of recognizing the thing she'd been saying my whole life that she did the best she could because that's her speech. She tells, I actually had a visceral sense of like, she really did. She really mm. did do the best that she could. And and in moments where I had thought of that as an excuse that she would make, because sometimes she would say it as though it was an excuse she was making, but having that right. like shivering sensation of recognizing like, oh, I see it now. I get it. Much like Mary Jane in the corner. Oh, yeah. he's fucking Spider-Man. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> right. Well, and uh, there's an interesting point there that I think a lot of times uh, to, to get very specific in your situation, a lot of times when someone's saying I'm doing the best that I can and we can't hear it, it's often because they don't actually believe it. Yep. They they are because we all are doing the best mm-hmm. we can. But when we have a voice inside of our head that says you're not doing the best you can, even when you try to say it to someone else, the other person will pick up on that other the incongruity, the, the that voice inside yourself. And then and then you're like, 
well, no, she's not. And then for you to transcend that and go, oh, I'm not going to take that on. I'm going to see she really is, even though she doesn't think she is. She yeah. really is. And more specifically in this moment, if we're talking about the kinds of results that you can have and what do we mean by you can have a breakthrough or a transcending moment? I'm saying that I had a story and a belief from my past of even a story that my mother repeated to me of choices that she made when I was really little. And that story always equaled either that she didn't love me or that was a ne neglectful thing that she did. Yeah. And in this moment of watching these, these few episodes of television shows, I think it all happened in the first or second season of watching once upon a time. I suddenly that literally all of the same memories and stories that she had told me about me when I was little suddenly equaled the thing that she did, the choices she made were the most loving thing mm. she could possibly do. The thing mm -hmm. that used to equal not love and also neglect was that thing she did is, is love. That equals love. My mother absolutely does love me. And that's the proof. I'm talking about like, mm. You can flip a switch instantaneously yes. on a story you've been telling and a belief you've been holding, and it can just be done. Yeah. It can be completely gone. And one of the things that can lead you to that is a TV show or a movie. Yeah. So that's a good place to wrap up. I think so. We've got other stories we could tell, but I, yeah. you know, we'll I think it's back. time. To, I think next time we talk about post waking up. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Okay, fabulous. All right, uh, insert I'll, I'll see you next phrase, week. tag mm -hmm. phrase, whatever here. Eventually, we're going to have some way to sign off here. But for <laughs> right now, um, love you all. Bye-bye. Thanks for being here. Bye.